1 John number 3. I was reminded of this verse in the last couple weeks in a testimony of someone's. And it's been on my mind. I read through it the other day. And it's just an encouragement to, there's, you know, there's, the Bible is encouraging all of it. Except for, you know, Leviticus and a couple of those. Um, you know which ones they are if you've ever read through your Bible. But it's all good. But some of them are just extra good, right? Um, you know, it's like going to the buffet. Usually you sit down and you, you say, that was pretty good, but I'm not going to eat any more of it. But this over here, I'm going to go back and get seconds and maybe thirds. You run into parts of Scripture. That's what it does to your soul. It just fills you up. And uh, I don't know about you, but hopefully it'll do the same for you as it has done for me recently. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you once again for letting us be here. I ask as we open your word that you would encourage us through it, you would edify us, you would help us to have prepared hearts that the word of God might fall therein and grow and prosper. And Lord, by faith, we trust that you will do what we could never do, that you would work in our hearts and direct us unto truth, help us to understand. And in our quest for truth, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes unto it, that you might get the glory and we might receive a blessing tonight, we pray. Amen. If you would draw your attention to verse number one there in 1 John chapter 3. John writing and says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. That's not this message or the lesson tonight, <clears throat> but you, we could spend some time, much time on it. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. What a wonderful thing it is to consider that God Almighty has a specific love for you and I. He doesn't just love us generally, he loves us personally. He loves us where we come from, he loves us where we begin, he loves us while we're going, he loves us where we're going. And he says, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, he's placed it upon us, he's showed us, he's, he's given it to us. You say, well, how has he given it to us? Well, we could spend much time just considering the grace of God, and really the grace of God is is evidence of the love of God. The grace of God that gives us our health tonight. The grace of God that allows us to be alive and, and in our right mind this evening. The grace of God after an election, whether you're thankful to be in Missouri or not, I think the grace of God lets you know you ought to be thankful you don't live in Illinois, right? You know, the, the grace of God is a wonderful thing to consider that you're born again tonight if you're here today and you're saved. That was the grace of God. That was the love of God. The thought that Christ, in his love for us, endured the cross, despised the shame, and died in our place for our sin. That's the love of God. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. And he, and he continues and says, That we should be called the sons of God. He says, I'm not just going to show my love to you tonight. He said, I'm not just going to die for you. I'm not just going to make you a new creature. He said, I'm willing to make you my own son. God says, I'm going to bring you, adopt you into my family. Paul writes about that. He, He says, we've been adopted into the family of God. He's redeemed us. He's taken us where we were and brought us from that and put us into his family. 
It would be one thing if there was, you know, credentials that we had to meet, requirements. I'll adopt you if you're, you know, and, and the list would go on. But he says, I don't care where you begin. He says, if you begin at the bottom, he says, I'm willing to redeem you and bring you into my family. He says, if you've rejected me and you're willing to repent, I'll bring you into my family. You think of the prodigal son. What a wonderful picture of, of grace and love that is. Where God, the, the picture of the, the, the father, the picture of God there in the story, his son had rejected him, refused to obey basically stolen his inheritance and wasted it on top of it. But when he returned, the father was willing to invite him back into the family. That's the love of God tonight. And John writes to us and and says, Behold what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew not him. Over and over you can recall where Jesus said, If they hate me... How do you think they're going to treat you? To his disciples, he said this. To his, his followers. He said, they hate me. They're going to kill me. What do you think they're going to do to you? Well, obviously, if they hate me as the leader, they're going to hate you as the follower. And besides John, history records all of those apostles, besides Judas, of course, losing their life for Christ. John being maybe worse than losing his life as he was... Uh, as history records, tormented and then exiled. They hated Christ, therefore they would hate his followers. And that is why, if you're here tonight and you're a believer, and you're not just a believer, but you are a, a true disciple, a follower of God, you don't fit in with the world. You don't think like the world, you don't talk like the world, you don't act like the world, and though you uh, enjoy the benefits of good character and the qualities of being saved, there's a lack of acceptance that the world has for you tonight. And you say, well, I'm accepted in the world. You might want to reconsider your uh, lifestyle as it pertains to the Word of God. Because John says what Jesus said, "If, if you love me, if you keep my commandments, if you walk with me, as they hated him, they're going to hate you. They're going to reject you. I was just talking to someone a week or so ago when um, Halloween came and went. And I'm sure most of you in here, if you, unless you're big advocates of Halloween, um, but you've been questioned by someone maybe at work. Are your kids going trick-or-treating? And, you know, I, I told this person, I said, I try to just evade the question because it doesn't really make sense to them. I usually just pull the short answer and say, you know, I'm not a big fan of scaring my kids all evening and then telling them, go to bed, there's nothing to be scared of. You know, it's kind of a, an oxymoron when it comes to parenting. But there's, there's a much deeper reason that I don't, uh, uh, you know, get along with certain traditions or holidays such as those. There, there's a reason we don't watch certain things. There's a reason we don't do certain things. And sometimes when it comes into question among the lost, they look at you like, you know, at very least, they look at you like you're an idiot. You're, you're weird, you're backwards, you're, you, you know, you're, you're, you're missing fun. Whether or not they necessarily hate you like they hated Christ, they're going to resist you. You're, you're, you're going to be a peculiar person. That's part of the sonship of a believer. He says the, the, the love of God has brought us into his family 
And because of this love, because of this adoption, the world's not going to receive you. But he continues in verse 2. He says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. He, he, he wants to lay this groundwork and be very clear. Don't forget you're a son of God or a daughter of God. Don't forget you're in the family of God. And, and can I remind you again tonight, if you were to really evaluate that in your mind and in your heart, if, if you were to really come to grips with that logic and that idea that we belong to the family of God, just that in and of itself is encouraging. Brother Jedediah said he likes positive and, and joyous songs. I do too. I like joyous scripture. This is, a, this is an area of joy when you think about the fact that you are placed into the family of God. So many people, they, they search for a position of leadership or a place in a certain relationship or, you know, a status among their peers or, you know, and it's not just often when we, we use that term, we think of teens, but you see uh, adults battling for position. We've seen this uh, over the course of years, really, but especially in the last days and weeks upcoming to this election. As people are battling to say, I'm better than this guy, this guy's worse than me. But when, as a believer, we consider... We've been adopted into the family of God. We, 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 we stand united, one, with Christ. We're not just servants anymore. He says, I've made you sons. I brought you into my household. What a wonderful position that is when we consider our place in Christ and in the family of God. He says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. He says, you see yourself as a man or a woman. You see yourself as a maybe mistreated in this world. You see yourself as he who is just trying to maybe make it, you know, survive. But he says, it hasn't... Let me read it again there in verse 2. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. He says, you're headed for something far different than what you see right now. I, was, I stopped by last Saturday and uh, spent a few minutes with Miss Betty Davis. And before we left, we were able to pray together and just rejoice in the fact that one day we would stand in the presence of God, that the pain that especially those who are elderly suffer with day in and day out, the losses of relationships that many have suffered will be reunited. And the joy of heaven for all eternity will be ours. What a wonderful thing that is. He says here in, in verse 2, he says, It doth not yet appear what we shall be. He says one day you're going to be not just reunited in a position with Christ, but you'll be in his very presence. It, it won't just be a title It'll be a reality. Paul writes a little bit about this when he says, Death, where's thy sting? You know, or, or, or death, where's thy victory? Where, thy, uh, grave, where's thy sting? He said, we're more than conquerors. He says, one day we'll, we'll set aside this body that de will, will decay in the grave. This body that suffers fears and, and losses and, and betrayals. And this body that is hated of this world. 
We'll set aside the pain. Nearly every week, uh, some of us go to the nursing home. I love to encourage those folks with this. There'll be no wheelchairs there. There'll be no walkers. There'll be no medication. There'll be no doctors. The person might, not, might be there, but they won't have the title of a doctor anymore. There'll be no need for them. Sometimes in our good health, in our good job, in our productive life, we forget about these things. Sometimes we forget about them until we suffer tribulation or difficulty. See, he's writing to a group of believers who knew what persecution was all about. A group of believers that not long before this watched their leader go to the cross and die. They had watched as men and women had been taken from their families and burned alive and put into prison and stoned and in all kinds of awful ways killed. And he speaks to these people with hope and encouragement saying, one day these things will all be gone. If we're not careful though, here in the Midwest, we enjoy the benefits of a degree of conservative, uh, conservatism in our politics. We enjoy the uh, growing economy. We enjoy the taxes on our uh, gasoline aren't going up. But if we're not careful, we forget about the things that really matter. We, we forget about the, the, the true riches that we have in Christ. And here, it was easy for them to get excited. I hope it's just as easy tonight for you to get excited. I hope we're not so focused on this world. I, I was just reading, uh, to, even this evening, there where Jesus talks about the parable of the sower. And he says, some fell among thorns. And he says those, to those disciples later, he said, those thorns are a picture of, uh, of the worldliness and riches and the deceitfulness of this life, and they'll go in and choke the life out of you spiritually. You'll be alive. You may be influential in society. You may be uh, the, the status for uh, maybe wealth or some type of gain, but he says spiritually, spiritually you'll be dead. He says one day we're going to be a little different. And he, say, he goes on and continues by saying, when he shall appear, we should be like him. See, we're not just going to have a new body. That's, that's good. That's exciting to think about. It's not just going to be an eternal body, although that's rewarding when you consider it. A, a body that will never get tired, never have to sleep, never need to sleep. We might get to sleep. Who knows? Maybe God will let us, you know, lay down and take a 10-year nap. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, why not? I mean, we won't need it, but maybe we'll get to It'll be a, a land of eternal rest. Maybe he'll let you work if you want to. But you won't get tired. You won't sweat. There'll be no homework, no schools. That's, I mean, it's for some of you, that's worth shouting, right? There'll be no chores. Things won't, ladies, the floor won't get dirty. There won't even be bathrooms to clean. And if there were bathrooms, they would never get dirty. A land of eternal bliss. And that's all wonderful, but he says, beyond that, he says, we're not just going to have a new body. He says, you're going to be like him. You're going to be like Christ. That new body is going to be a righteous body that knows no sin. A body of purity, a mind of eternal purity. 
What a wonderful thing that is. No, there won't not even not even sinful thoughts. There'll be no negative thoughts. There'll be no complaining. Let's go, right? Let's stop right here and head for heaven. No complaints. There'll be nothing to complain about. Which is hard for me to believe when I see some people sing in church. Because I think there's going to be a lot of singing in heaven. Which makes me wonder, maybe there will be some complaining. But the, the, the joyous sound and the bright display of majesty will drown out any attempt to complain. And we shall be like him. And look at this. We, shall, uh, we know not what we shall, how we shall appear. We shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And for the first time, we'll be able to gaze into the eyes of the one who died for us. We'll be able to, like John did, rest in his bosom and enjoy his presence. The one whom we serve, the one whom we love, the one whom we accepted. See, some of you, this doesn't excite you because you're not even born again. I see people right now, they they don't give two cents for what we're talking about tonight. The love of God gave His own Son to die for you. I just read in Hebrews, how shall He escape the great wrath when you watch the blood poured at your feet and you trample it? But I hope tonight these things in your heart resonate. See, this is where we've been talking a lot about faith. Prior to that, we were talking a lot about Discipleship, the true disciple has his focus on these things. The things of this world, yes, we enjoy them. There's things that benefit us. There's things that help us. But to the believer, if he lost it all tonight, he would still have matter to rejoice. Because his hope and his faith and his pleasure and his life isn't consumed with this world. It's focused on the things of God. He says, we should be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now look at verse 3. This is what I wanted to get to. And every man... Now that's mankind. That's not just men tonight. That's you ladies tonight too. That's children. If you're here tonight and you can hear me, that includes you. Every man. You're not exempt. So pay attention. Every man. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. We're living in a society where it's very difficult to keep your life pure. It's difficult. Everywhere you turn, there's impurities. If you have a job, besides maybe Brother Jedediah and Brother John Seitz, he works at home. If you go to, if you go to work and you enter into the workplace, you know that there's filth in abundance, regardless of what form of employment you're in. The, the language, and by the way, it's, and you know this, but it's commonplace. It's not even, it, I remember just recently, someone was telling me a story about a, his pastor. Um, I work with both sites, he's going to be questioning me who it is, I don't know if I told him the story. But he's telling the story, and he says, yeah, our pastor's out of town, and uh, he's going on his, uh, um, like a 
sabbatical rest. Uh, I don't know how long he's going to be gone, maybe seven weeks. I don't know what they, never really heard of that before as far as a pastor is concerned. But he's taking a break. And he says, but he still posts things online. And in the midst of telling me that he's posting things online, he used profanity to describe it. And I'm thinking, you know, scratch my head, something's not balancing out right. You know, when, when, you're, when you use profanity to explain what your pastor does while he's gone because, you know, to encourage you, you know, that, sign me up. Where, where's this church at? Let's go. But worldliness is just in abundance and excess. All forms of entertainment push immorality and pleasure-seeking. They, they, they appeal to the fleshly emotions of mankind. You say, why do they do that? Because that's where the prophets are. That's where the, the sin of man desires. By the way, even if you're here today and you're saved, there's that old man that you still walk around in. That's the flesh that you live in. There's still a hunger for that. Maybe it's covered up. Maybe it's restrained, which it ought to be. But there's still deep within you the old man, the carnal side. Paul said, I deal with it all the time. He says, there are things that I desire to do. And he says, I I find myself falling short of those things. He says, there's things that I know I ought not to do. The Apostle Paul says, there's things I ought not to do. And I find myself doing them. And this world system just pushes at us on every side. Look at verse 3 again. He says, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. You say, well, how do I stay pure in this impure world? How do I keep my mind pure? How do I keep my language pure? How do I keep my heart pure? And by the way, it all begins in the mind, the heart, the emotions. If you can keep the inside pure, the external is going to be pure. Jesus talked about that when he said, if you, may, if you have an evil tree, you're going to have evil fruit. He said, no man pr- uh, get his good fruit off of an evil tree. And you don't pick... Evil fruit off of a good tree. It's going to grow good fruit. If your life is bearing good fruit consistently and faithfully, that's evidence of a clean heart and a godly heart. You say, well, how do I get that godly heart? What motivates me? How do do I stay focused on these things? Look again at verse 3. He says, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. You say, what, what hope is that? We just read it in verse 1 and 2. The hope that first of all... By the way, the, that word hope is like confidence. You, you're sure of something. Um, if, if I were to say, my, um, my hope is that the sun will rise in the morning. Well, you say, well, it'll for sure right. Yeah, that's because my hope's in it. Yeah, I, I, can, I can assure that, it, that it'll come up in the morning. I, my faith is in the sun in the morning. It'll come up. He says, if you have this hope, if you have this steadfastness, if you have this confidence, you're going to purify yourself. You're going to be motivated to purify yourself. Well, what confidence is it? We're not going to read them all again, but back up. He says, first of all, you're a child of God. You've been adopted into the family of God. Those who are well aware and conscious of the fact that they're in the family of God don't live like they're in the family of the devil. There's a motivation that comes with that. See, when you find yourself over here living like the world, chances are you've forgotten who you really are. 
You've allowed Satan to blind you, to uh, really just tempt you into getting that thought that my life really doesn't matter, the way I act doesn't matter. That, have, you've had those thoughts before. Right before, during, and after you sin, you, you have these thoughts like, well, it doesn't really matter. I, I, did, I did this yesterday. What does it matter if I do it again today? We have this thought of, well, you know, nobody else is doing right. What does it matter if I do right? See, those are the thoughts that say, you know, you're your own man. Your life doesn't reflect anyone else's. Your uh, actions don't matter to anyone. But over here, the side that says, I'm in the family of God. I'm a child of the King. I'm just as much a son of God as Jesus is. And one day I'm going to be like him. See, that's the attitude that drives someone to live righteous because they know who they are. Now, that's not some kind of an egotistic, you know, holier than thou, I'm better than those people because I'm a child of the king. In fact, it's just the opposite. When we consider our place in Christ, we consider the example that he gave us. And the example was really an example of humility. All throughout the scripture, when you study the life of Christ, even the prophecy of the Old Testament was always prophetic and an example of humility. It was always pointing others to the Father. It was always taking the servant's role. All the way, Pastor, I think, mentioned this Sunday night, all the way up to the, uh, right before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, the last act that he performed was the washing of the disciples' feet. An act that very few people would have the humility to be a part of. But Jesus was willing to take the servant's role. That ought to be the role we take. To serve. Why? Because we're a child of the King. Why? Because we've been placed into the body of Christ. Why? Because we're a son of God. And because one day we'll see him as he is and we'll be like him. Every man that hath this hope, what hope is it? It's the hope that one day we'll set aside these trials and cares and toils of life and we'll enter into rest with him. One day, regardless of what position and title we get at our job, that will pass. One day, regardless of uh, our relationships here on earth, those too will pass. One day, regardless of how big our bank account is, it will all be left to another. The hope that says, one day, I'm going to leave all this behind and enter into heaven. That's the hope that gives us a really a reassurance and a commitment and a reminder to live righteously. I'm going to turn over to 2 Timothy. This is Paul's Final words, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says in verse number 6, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Can you imagine being Timothy receiving this letter? Considering the great apostle Paul, 
the man for him personally that he admired, that he had followed, that he had served, that he had learned from. And he's literally writing his farewell address. He's writing his own obituary. He says, I'm ready to be offered up. Not to brag, but to really just state facts and to encourage. In verse 7, he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. He said, I had a fight, I had battles, and I fought them well. He said, I finished my course. God gave me a course to follow, and I finished my course. By the way, God's given you a course as well. Course for you alone to follow, for no one else to follow but you. Paul was able to say, I finished mine. And he says, I have kept the faith, and I've been faithful to the end. What a word of testimony. What a word of encouragement. What a, what a desire for all of us to have that we might one day say, I too have fought a good fight. I've finished my course and I've kept the faith. And then he says, henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. He says, I'm convinced God has a crown of righteousness set aside for me that one day will be placed on my head. Not for me to skip through heaven and gloat and brag about, but that I might cast it at his feet and show my great love for what he had done for me. What about you tonight? Does God have a crown for you? Now, I don't know how Paul, except God told him, knew that he had a crown. But I think when he wrote this, it was under the inspiration of the Spirit. It was the very word of God given to Paul. It was his testimony. It was truth. So I think it really happened. Whether he got it already or one day we'll get to see him being rewarded with it, I know not. But Paul goes on and he says, you too can receive a crown. You say, well, how could I receive a crown? What do I got to do? What, what good works do I got to do to receive a crown? You know, if we're, not th- if we're not careful, we start thinking like that too. You know, why do we, why do, we do good works? Well, you know, I got to keep God happy with me. You know, I got to earn so many blessings. Remember where we started, you're accepted in Christ, not because of what you do or who you are, but because of the love of God. Now, Pastor just talked about this Wednesday night. That doesn't give us an excuse or a pass on sin. And that doesn't give you an automatic, uh, you know, everything's going to be fine spiritually for you. You'll always have an open door. You have to make those decisions on your own, and you've got to receive what God gives you. But here he says, not for a certain thing, amount of things we've done or for, you know, so much money given. I wish it said, if you want to win a crown, you've got to give so much to the building fund. It'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? It would be a lot easier to motivate, motivate people. But look at verse number eight with me toward the end. He says, but unto all them also that love his appearing. You say, how do I earn a crown? Learn to love his appearing. What does that mean? One day he's going to return for you. Do you desire that moment? 
Do you long? Do you expect? Do you look for the return of Christ? Now, we could probably all agree and say, of course, we want Christ to come. But let me ask you, this afternoon, while you were alone in your car, last night, while you were flipping through the channels on the television, on the way to church, when you were arguing with your wife or your husband, did you want God to find you then? Do you want God to find you the way you're thinking when no one's around? I mean, it'd be nice right now. You know, we're all sitting at church, we have our Bibles open. You know, we're all ready. But what about when the Bibles are closed? What about when stress seems like it's just piling on us? What what happens when, you know, the people at work are tempting you or the the young people at school are giving you options of, of things you know that aren't right? Do you think about Christ coming then? Because Paul says those who constantly have the thought that Christ could come right now, just like John writes, keep their lives pure. John says if you constantly are aware and thinking of the fact that one day I'm going to stand in his presence, and it could be right now. He could come for us right now, and I could stand there, and I don't want to be found unready, unprepared. For those who have children, unless your children are as good as mine, there have been times where you walk into the room and all of a sudden, you know, panic. Whatever they have in their hand, thrown, hide behind their back. You know, they don't don't want to get caught. They were fine doing it until they found out um, mom or dad walked in. I'll never forget, I was visiting on our bus route this many years ago. I was still in high school, and uh, I went up to a young man's house that was coming. He was just a couple years younger than me, probably 14 or 15. <clears throat> and before I knocked on the door, he, was, he didn't know I was there. He was coming out. He was taking a, I'll never forget, he was taking a PlayStation to the neighbor's house. And he walked out the door, he opened the door, and he had a cigarette in his mouth, busted. And he went, there's a few things that are hard to hide behind your back. A burning stick of dynamite and a, you know, a cigarette. I, I, I always think of the verse in Proverbs where it says, uh, you know, it talks about having an ointment on your hand and your, your hand betrayeth you or berayeth you. It, you know, you, you try and hide it, but the evidence is there. It's funny how it was, all, it was, it was okay until Brother Justin saw him. You know, it's okay until mom or dad sees us. It's okay till the teacher catches us. What if we had the thought that young people at school, what if you just constantly had this thought? Mrs. Morocco is watching me. She might not even be in the room, which some of you think that. She's not in the room, but somehow she sees what I'm doing. What if we constantly had the thought, my parents are watching me. My parents are listening to what I'm listening to. What would that do to the things you listen to? What would that do to the things you watch? For believers, what if we constantly thought right now could be the moment Christ returns? Right now, I could stand in his presence with the cigarette behind my back. How embarrassing. How shameful. What a pity it would be for us to have all this truth, for us to have all these opportunities, for us to have all the necessary and available 
tools that we need to live holy and righteous. But God find us ashamed. What a pity that would be. But I think it's safe to say for many or maybe most Christians, if God returned right now, they would be ashamed. How to avoid that shame? Live like Christ could come back today and that you in his presence would begin all of eternity. How do you want to be found? By the way, that's just not just living purely. That doesn't mean we ought to, you know, hunker down and, uh, you know, keep our can of Germex out and make sure everybody does right. Better than just being found faith, uh, being found pure is to be found faithful, busy. That's what Jesus said over and over. He said, occupy till I come. He told the story of the parable uh, of the, the, uh, the talents. He gave the analogy. The man went away to a far country. He left his goods with his servants. And he had one expectation for them, that they would be busy with it. Are you being busy with what God's given you, the time, the health? the talents, the resources? Or are we too with those just being lazy, neglecting them? Are we like the servant with the one talent? Are our goods buried within the earth only to one day be found as an unfaithful steward? I want to encourage you tonight. What if we made tonight the night we begin living like Christ could come back? At any moment. What if we said for the next. Just day. One day. What if we made a commitment. Tomorrow. Thursday. From the moment we woke up. To the moment we went to bed. We were going to live. Like Christ was about to come back. Before you spoke. You said Christ is going to catch me in this sentence. That would change. The way men spoke to their wives. That might even. Change the way wives speak to their husbands. That might change the way you as a young person speaks to your parents. That would change. Before you have this thought, you say to yourself, God's going to catch me thinking this. Before you turn the radio on, you say, God's going to catch me listening to this. You say, is God some kind of a, you know, a scary judge that we ought to fear? No, he's a good God. And he deserves our utmost purity and faithfulness. And he wants to reward that. See, it's a good thing that we follow the and, and adhere to the principles of Scripture. It's good for us. It's good for the masses around us that know not God. And I can promise you this, one day in eternity you'll be thankful that you did. I can assure you, Paul's not sitting in heaven thinking, you know, this whole, you know, finishing my course and fighting the fight and being faithful, it wasn't worth it. I don't think it's going on. I think as we sing the song sometimes, I wish I'd given him more. That might even be the words of Paul. I wish I could have started this earlier. I regret those days where I live for self. And by the way, if you, this is, this is a, a, a conscious decision. You've got you to make an effort to obey this part of Scripture. You, you're not just going to haphazardly or casually 
live the rest of your life thinking Christ might come back. You've got to make the effort to do so. You've got to resist the temptation to think the temporal and the here and now and the selfish desires of, uh, of my flesh. But for those who make the effort, I can assure you it's a rewarding pursuit. I think it would be good for all of us to decide tonight. Tomorrow, let's start there. Now, I know you knew this, but I'm going to encourage you if you get through tomorrow. For one, if you get through tomorrow and you do it all day long, call me and let me know. Because I'm going to be impressed. Well, let's do it again on Friday. Let's do it again on Saturday. What a difference we could make. What a difference you could make in your, with your testimony at work and your... As a, as a father, think, think of the influence you could have on your children. Think of the heart attacks you could give your parents and teachers. Think of the benefits spiritually that you could receive by just doing something so simple. See, the Bible is very practical. It's very simple. I didn't say it was easy, but it's simple. This goes all, it goes against our nature. It goes against our flesh. But let's choose tonight to decide, I'm going to live as if Christ's coming is before I finish my next thought or my next sentence or my next act. That one day, by the way, he will catch you in your next sentence or your next thought or your next act. Let's be found faithful. Let's be found pure as John uh, encourages us to.